So today we begin our new sermon series titled Rooted in the Truth. Rooted in the Truth. And it's based on the book of 2 Peter. But before we look at our text this morning, I want to give you a little bit of background on this amazing book in the New Testament. We took a little bit of time in Sunday school to talk about the authorship of of 2 Peter. We won't talk about that here. But if you have questions regarding the authorship of 2 Peter, I would encourage you to come and speak to me about that. We believe wholeheartedly that Peter wrote 2 Peter as the book states. But the style and approach of 2 Peter is markedly different than 1 Peter. And it actually bears a striking resemblance to the book of Jude. So these books together, 2 Peter and Jude, are sometimes referred to as the dark corner of the New Testament. And they're often neglected and overlooked. Uh, Whether it's their brevity, their unique structure, the harsh tone with which they address immoral behavior and false teachers, or, or whatever the reasons, people have placed these books in a dark corner and ignored them. Whatever the reasons for that... They don't belong there. So it's a challenge for me as I embark on 2 Peter. I believe wholeheartedly that one should not have confidence in preaching God's Word in and of themselves. And every week I I sit down at my computer with all my books and my software, my Bible programs, and I every week I say probably hundreds of times, Lord, I can't do this because it is so far beyond anything that I can do. And as I tackle 2 Peter, I feel the weight of what lies ahead of us as we begin to look at this book. This is not an easy book. So I encourage you to be reading through it, to be praying through it as we embark on this journey together. Yes, it's three chapters, just a couple of pages in your, book, in your Bible, but I would encourage you to read through uh, those, uh, those pages every day, to start every morning reading all three chapters. And begin to see what God is showing us as we work through this book. And I think we will find as we do that the book of 2 Peter, like the book of 1 Peter, is very applicable to where the church is today. The book of 2 Peter was written, as I mentioned, by the Apostle Peter, probably from a Roman prison, just before his death. See, Peter knew that his time on earth was short. And therefore, he wrote this letter as a means of sharing his final wishes to those whom he loved. And as we consider Peter's words and what Peter's dying words are, I think it's appropriate for us to consider what would our dying words be to the people whom we love? If we knew that we were going to die within just a short period of time, the Lord came to you and said, your time on earth is almost up. What would you say and how would you spend your dying moments? And for some of us, the topic of our conversations might need to change a great deal. For some of us, we would no longer be as concerned about whether the Red Sox won or lost, or how our careers are going, or whatever other worldly matters we're focused on. Instead, we might have a different perspective. And I couldn't help, as I was thinking about this, uh, I couldn't help but thinking of the fact that my father died um, uh, almost six years ago, it'll be uh, six years ago uh, on Michaela's birthday. He died on Michaela's 10th birthday. And I remember him laying in a hospital bed, and I remember him saying, don't worry about me. I know where I'm going. Be concerned about them. And looking around at my, brothers, my brother and my sisters. And, and I, can't, I can't help but think, 
that here's a man who he's dying, and some of his last words were, don't worry about me, I know where I'm going. And how encouraging and what a blessing that was to me. My father was not a believer until later in life. So his life wasn't always that way. But once he got saved, and in the later years of his life, his, his thoughts began to become more and more on, focused on Scripture and on eternal things. And I compared and I contrasted that this past week with another man who I went to his funeral, a, a man that I, I grew up with, I knew his grandson well, and I had gone to this funeral, and I had never heard the name of Jesus uttered from this man's mouth ever. Never heard anything about God or Christ or anything. And this was a man who loved to talk. And yet, at his funeral, his best friend stood up and said, he asked me to deliver this message. He asked me to deliver the Gospel message. And I thought, why didn't he say it when he was alive? If that was his dying wish that the Gospel would be shared, why didn't he say it when he was alive? But Peter, Peter doesn't make that about face that some of us might have to make in our lives if God was to tell us that He's taking us home. That some of us would have to make such an about face that we would say, whoa, wait a minute, all that time that I spent talking about these things doesn't matter. What matters is the Gospel. Peter doesn't have to make an about face. Instead, Peter, faced with death, reinforces what he's been saying all along. He continues to point us back to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So without further ado, let's look at our text this morning. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Second Peter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word this morning. Amen. You may be seated. So Peter, in these few verses, points us back to the Gospel. Because he wants to reinforce what he has been saying all along. And we'll see this as we work through 2 Peter. Look just a couple of verses ahead to 2 Peter 1, verses 13 and 14. Peter says this, he says, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, as long as I'm in this body of mine, to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, knowing that I'm going to die, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter says, I've taught you the Gospel, I've preached the Gospel to you, and now my time is almost up. And I want you to remember the Gospel. 
This is my opportunity to say what I've been saying all along. So when we think back on 1 Peter, we remember that he instructed churches throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and he taught them to stand firm in the gospel. And he's once again doing the same thing. In his last letter, though, Peter's main focus was encouraging believers to remember the gospel and to let it shape the way they lived as they handled trials and suffering. This letter, though, is more of a warning against the dangers of perverting or changing the message of the gospel. You see, some in the church were teaching doctrines and ideas that were simply not true. And Peter wants his readers to know that the gospel that they need to cling to is the gospel that is rooted in the truth of God's Word. And that any other gospel really is not gospel at all. That any gospel that is not rooted in the truth is not good news at all. So Peter actually starts this letter the same way he started 1 Peter. So we read these verses. And if you were to go back and you were to look at the outline from your very first sermon in 1 Peter, you'd find that the outline is exactly the same as today's. Because while not using the exact same words, Peter's communicating the same ideas. He's building a foundation that we need to then, uh, or he's laying a foundation to build on that we need to then build on as we work through the rest of this book. So today, Peter is going to remind us of three things. The provision of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the promises of the gospel. So the first point in your sermon outline today is the provision of the gospel. The provision of the gospel. Peter's once again reminding us that God is the author of salvation through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And in verse 1, Peter says, To those who have received a faith, of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice what this verse says about God's provision of the gospel for us. First, faith is is a gift that is received. Faith is a gift that is received, not a wage that is earned. Peter says, to those who have received a faith, And the word received is only used a handful of times, I think three times in the New Testament. And it always carries with it the idea of being divinely chosen. In fact, it's always used with regard to casting lots. It's used in such a way that when people would cast lots to discern God's will, this word is used. It's the same word that's used in Luke 1.9 where we read, according to the custom of the priestly office, the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. So the, the priest each year was chosen by lot. It's the same exact word that Peter uses when he says you have received a faith. You have been divinely chosen. The New English translation, the NLT Uh, or the NET, excuse me, says it well when it says, to those who have been granted a faith, they've been given something. And the idea thus is not one of us possessing faith that we give to God. Instead, it's, it's of God choosing us as the recipients of faith. Sometimes I think we see faith as something that we possess that we in turn give back to God. And in fact, Scripture teaches that no, God gives us The gift of faith. Secondly, notice that Peter says, 
to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. The ESV translates this as, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Because the Greek here carries with it the idea of having the same value. So he says, you've received a faith of the same value as ours. And while it's not clear who Peter is talking about when he says ours, I'm inclined that it, that it means the same kind as the apostles, and others argue that he means the Jews who have believed the gospel. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter who Peter lumps himself with when he says you've received the same faith, the same kind of faith, faith of equal value as ours. He means the same faith, faith that has equal value as Peter's. That you stand here in South Thomaston, Maine at Harmony Bible Church and Peter says, I'm writing this letter to you who have received a faith that is just as valuable as the faith that I have received. Those are amazing words from Peter. And regardless of which group he's referring to, the Jews who believe the Gospel, or the apostles, the point is that Peter is not just addressing people of faith, but people of a particular faith. That that he says, to those who have received a faith of equal value as ours, he's talking about a specific, particular faith. Faith. You see, there's people in this world who have faith. He's talking about faith that has value. And there's a lot of people who have faith that has absolutely no value whatsoever. We can go out into the world and there's all kinds of people who talk about the faith they have, but it's no benefit to them, especially with regard to eternal life. It's not a saving faith. I can have faith... In this book. But it's no, there's no benefit to having faith in this book or that computer or any other random thing. Peter says, I'm addressing the people who have faith of the same value as the, the group that I am in. He's speaking to people with saving faith. In other words, Peter wants us to know that not just any kind of faith will suffice. It must be genuine faith and trust in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like if we're in an airplane and the pilot announces, the plane's going down. You need to put on your parachutes. You need to put on your parachute, but then you need to have faith in that parachute. You need to have enough faith to exit the plane. It doesn't, it's not enough to put on the parachute and then go down with the plane. You have to trust in the parachute. And that's what we need to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to not just put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are people in this world who will say, I've tried Jesus, but it didn't work. He didn't work. And I'd say, no, you need to place your trust, trust your life in Jesus Christ. And the result, for those who do, is the same for all who possess that kind of faith. The result is Christ's payment being applied to our sin debt. Which brings us to our next observation about the provision of the gospel. The second observation about the, or the the third observation about the provision of the gospel is that this provision has been made by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You see, the Bible teaches that we, as human beings, are not righteous. That we've broken God's laws. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the punishment, the wages, the payment that we have earned for our sin is death. It goes like this. If I was to try to throw a rock at the moon, I might get closer than Mark. Or Mark might get closer than I. But neither one of us are going to hit the moon. And God's standard is one of perfection. So while one of us might live a better life, a more righteous life, neither one of us are righteous before God. Neither one of us have done that well or perfect. And the wages of sinning against God is death. And then most amazing of all, in Romans 5.8, Paul says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what Peter is pointing to. Peter is pointing us to the fact that Christ, who was righteous, died in our place. And by the way, it wasn't just any man who died. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ is fully God. And Peter really uh, brings that home in this verse here. Scripture teaches that God Himself died for us. And this is evident here in today's text. Peter says, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the construction here makes it clear that God and Savior both refer to Jesus Christ. He isn't saying our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The construction is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's remarkable. So for those of you who have friends who say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know about this whole Jesus is God thing. It's here. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God Himself came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for you. And then was raised from death on that third day, defeating death and suffering. So Peter says the provision of the Gospel has been made by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul, Paul in all of his letters communicates the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And in Philippians 3.8, 8 and 9, Paul says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I think that it's important before moving on to just spend a couple of minutes in prayer reflecting on the provision of the Gospel. I think sometimes we get so caught up in what is the Bible teaching me to do that we forget what God has done for us. And we need to spend more time thinking about what God has done for us because that will motivate us for the doing. Let's just pray remembering the provision of the Gospel. 
Father, I just thank you for the gift of faith that you have given us. Thank you for the gift of faith that credits to us your Son's righteousness. God, we know that every one of us have sinned and fallen short of your perfect law. And that without a Savior, that without a Savior, we would die and spend eternity separated from you in hell. And God, I just pray that every person here would place their trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that every person here would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that their eternity is secure, not because of their righteousness, but because of Yours. God, just work mightily in us and through us. Give us, all of us, the gift of faith this morning to believe Your Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So now... If we're going to be on time for Bill to make it to the Spruce Head evening service tonight, we need to move on to the second point in our sermon outline. The second point in our sermon outline is the power of the gospel. So we've talked about the, the provision of the gospel, and now we talk about the power of the gospel. Look at verses 2 through 3 with me. 2 Peter 1, verses 2 through 3. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Peter is saying that grace and peace are multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he says, grace, this unmerited favor, this favor that you don't deserve, but that God gives to you, is multiplied to you in this way. And that peace, peace with God, is multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The word knowledge carries not just the idea of intellectual assent. Now understand me, I'm not saying that it it precludes or that it does not include intellectual thinking, for it does. But it's not just knowing something intellectually, but also includes intimately knowing, as in a relationship. It's the kind of knowing that, that Paul spoke of in Philippians 3.10, when he said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. He said that I may know Jesus, not just know Jesus intellectually, but to walk with Jesus, to be in relationship with Him. It's the same kind of knowing that Jesus referred to in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 21-23, when He says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father... Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is what Jesus says, and then on that day, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
Clearly, this kind of knowledge is more than just head knowledge, for Jesus knows every individual on the face of this earth. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. And yet, He says to these people, I never knew you. Peter says, grace and peace are multiplied to you in the knowledge and building and developing a relationship with God and Jesus our Lord. Peter says, here, unlike verse 1, he separates God and Jesus our Lord. So here, he says God and Jesus our Lord. He separates the two individual, the two terms to underscore the fact that we need to be in right relationship with them both. So in verse 1, he talks about Jesus as God. And then here we see him talking about God and Jesus. And he says you need to be in right relationship with them both. You see, it's not all that uncommon, as I mentioned earlier, to find somebody who says they believe in God, but not Jesus. In fact, I believe that most people... I don't know as though I'd say most. Maybe that's changing. It used to be that most people in America would say they believed in God. However, they do not believe in Jesus as God. And then, to take that a step further, they certainly have not committed their lives and they're not placing their trust in Jesus. And conversely, it's not all that uncommon to find somebody who says, They follow the teachings of Jesus. But they deny the truth of verse 1, that Jesus is God. We see this all the time where people say, I believe Jesus was a great teacher. You even see atheists who will say, well, it all comes back to the words of Jesus. It does? Really? I am? I am the truth? I am the way? I am the light? See, Jesus clearly claimed to be God. And we need to be in right relationship with them both. Peter here is stressing that true grace, true grace and peace come through knowing, being in relationship with both God the Father and Jesus. And then Peter says, when you know Jesus, when you know Jesus in this way, when you have received the Gospel, something amazing happens. His divine power has granted to us Everything pertaining to life and godliness. He says, when you know Jesus in this way, when you're in relationship with Him, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This is an amazing sentence. I used to think that it, that it meant that Christ helped us live a godly life. So in other words, the other day I'm at work, and I'm kind of scrawny, and there's a sofa that I'm trying to get out of the warehouse and onto the back of a truck. And the warehouse guy is about this big, and could probably pick the sofa up and throw it onto the back of the truck. But I'm here, and I, I tip it down, and I'm trying to lift it up. And I, and I envisioned, I used to envision that I would be trying to work my way through life, and that I, I would lift it up as much as I could, and then the warehouse guy, this is what happened, he came over, and he helped me, right? That he, he finished the job for me. And that's what I used to think this verse meant. That we, we trudge along in the Christian life, and we go as far as we can, And then God gives us the rest of what we need. He gives us that extra boost, so to speak. But that's not what's being said here. Peter says, Christ's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to eternal life. 
That's what's meant here, by the way, when he says life, eternal life. He means clearly, in context, he says eternal life and godliness, godliness for this life. So he says God's given you everything pertaining to eternal life and godliness for this life here and now. He's given us everything. God doesn't help us. He enables us. He does it completely. See, being a Christian isn't a marathon where we run as far as we can in our own strength. And then, once we collapse from exhaustion, we rely on Christ to carry us the rest of the way. Instead, we're utterly dependent on Him carrying us the whole way. He gives us everything we need for eternal life and for life here and now to live in a way that is godly. He provides for the whole race in His divine power. So if you're trying to be godly in your own strength, repent. Repent. You can't do it. Peter started with the fact that you didn't start the race. That faith was a gift given to you. And now he wants you to know you can't run it either. You can't be godly in your own strength. And you certainly are not going to finish it in your own strength. You're not going to reach the end and achieve eternal life because of anything you did. It's because of Jesus Christ and His righteousness and what He did through His divine power. You need His divine power. And I don't know how many times I've said, I can't do this anymore. And my wife has said, have you prayed? Well, I didn't think of that. Right? I'm the pastor. Right? I didn't think of that. Or we say to our kids, they say, I'm trying. And we say, stop trying. And we mean it. Stop. Trust in Jesus. Have you, have you laid this on His feet and let Him take it? Let Him carry you. Because you're trying and trying and trying in your own strength. And you're just digging yourself deeper and deeper. And in case we've already forgotten how that divine power comes to us, Peter continues on and he says, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. He once again brings up true knowledge. That power comes through receiving the Gospel of Christ and knowing being in relationship with Him. So now we move on to the third and final point in our sermon outline, the promises of the Gospel. The promises of the Gospel. Verse 4, look at verse 4 with me. Peter says, For by these He has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Verse 4 begins with, For by these, referring back to Christ's glory and excellence. He's saying, By Christ's glory and excellence, He has granted to us precious and magnificent promises. And Peter's statement can certainly be applied to all of Christ's promises. He has granted to us many, many promises. But it seems as though Peter had participation in the divine nature in mind in particular here. For he goes on and says, So that, he's given you these promises, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Peter does not mean that we become God. Both with, either with a capital G or a lowercase g, as some false religions teach today. Peter is not saying, you become God by participating in the divine nature. 
The word partakers means sharers. And Peter is referring to the fact that we become more Christ-like as we grow in our faith. And that we ultimately escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. You see, we become more and more righteous, more and more morally upright as we grow in our faith. And God's plan, as we have talked about so many times, is to make you more like Jesus. And He is relentless in that. Romans 8, 28 and 29. He desires good in your life and that good is making you more like Christ. So as you grow in your faith and you become more holy, which is in large part what Peter is referring to here, he also has something more in mind though. He has something even grander in mind when he says this. He also has in mind the final and ultimate escape that exists for all believers. He says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Yes, we are continually escaping the corruption that is in the world by our own evil desires, by lust. But he says, ultimately, there will be a final escape. You see, Peter's hope doesn't lie in this life alone. He agrees with Paul, who in 1 Corinthians 15.9 says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We should be pitied if it's just for this life. See, Peter wants us to fix our gaze on something bigger, something beyond this life. Look at 2 Peter 3.13 with me. 2 Peter 3.13. Peter makes this abundantly clear that this is the focus of his book, or a large part of the focus of his book. He says, But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, that we look beyond this life. And we look toward the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Praise God for that promise. And as we discussed in Sunday school, having no idea that Bill would bring this up, that if we focus on that new heaven and the new earth, how much will it change the way we live now? Peter wants us to fix our gaze on that promise. Paul explained the the same idea that our hope is not in the things of this world in Philippians 3. And it's a long passage, but I'm going to read it anyway. Philippians 3, 7-13. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be in loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish, as we read earlier, that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. I have a vision for something that lies further down the road so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I press on. I focus on eternity. I'm focusing on what lies ahead and I'm pressing on. And how does he press on? He tells us. If you read just a couple of verses ahead, verses 20 and 21, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That is participating in the divine nature. He says, you are going to be transformed to be like Christ. Set your hope on that. Set your eyes on that. Paul says, I press on by remembering the promises of the Gospel. That our citizenship is in heaven. That He's coming back and that He's going to, he's going to transform us and conform us into His image. And in today's text, Peter is pointing to these same promises. He says, He, Jesus, has granted to us precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You may be more like Him, having escaped, being delivered from the corruption that is in the world by evil desires, by lust. So it is appropriate that we would find ourselves in 2 Peter 1, verses 1-4 through on Communion Sunday. Peter wrote this letter not knowing exactly how much time he had left, but that his life was drawing to a close. And finding himself in that position, he sees fit to point us back to the Gospel once again. Peter, in these four verses, reminds us of the provision of the Gospel, the power of the Gospel, and the promises of the Gospel. The provision of the Gospel that God has given us the gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. That we have received a faith that has value. The power of the Gospel. That Christ's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to eternal life and godliness and this life here. And the promises of the Gospel. That God has granted us precious and magnificent promises not only in this life, but also an ultimate and final rescue from sin as we spend eternity with Him in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank You. Thank You. Thank You for Your grace. God, may we be eager to appropriate, to remember the Gospel and apply it to our lives daily. God, I pray and ask that the Gospel is what drives us and motivates us. God, I pray that from this pulpit that the Gospel is always the central focus. God, not that we would just preach that men must be saved by the Gospel, but that we are continuing to grow and be saved by the Gospel. God, I just pray and ask that You'd be with us as we remember the provision of the Gospel, what You have done for us, as we remember the power of the Gospel that You have given us Your divine power to, to achieve eternity, to, to finish the race and to finish in Your grace knowing that we have eternity ahead of us and to live godly lives here and now. And God, I pray that we would remember the promises of the Gospel, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth and an ultimate rescue from this world and the lust that we are part of, our evil desires in it. God, I just pray and ask Your blessing upon us this morning as we reflect on these things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.